Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live here in Calm Radio in Mbantua, Alice Springs through all uh, nations, through Vast Channel 911 and on 8KNFM here in Mbantua. We're also coming to you online at karma.com.au. Today is, of course, Tuesday, the 7th of May, 2019. I'm your host for the program, Carl Dowling, and you'll have my company all the way up until 12 o'clock today. We're coming up on Strong Voices. Suicide amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people continues to be a very alarming issue with many First Nations peoples, many of whom are quite young, taking their lives in this year alone. Today, we're going to hear some of the audio from ABC's Q&A program last night, where the federal leader of the opposition, Bill Shorten, discussed Indigenous suicide following a question from a member of the audience. Also staying on the topic of Aboriginal suicide, Adele Cox, Project Director of the National Indigenous Critical Response Service, will be discussing progress made since the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention Evaluation Project, which was delivered to the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull back in 2016. We're going to be looking at some of the progress made during that period and how different service providers and allocations of funding have impacted from Ms. Adele Cox's point of view. Also, we're going to be hearing about a meditation app called Smiling Minds, which has collaborated with elders from the NPY Women's Council to create the first of its kind culturally orientated meditation app with the aim of helping Aboriginal communities deal with mental health and trauma issues. We're also going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. This is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Suicide rates among First Nations peoples have been at an alarming level for quite some time as a range of organisations and service providers continue to call for this to be made a national priority. Both the federal government and opposition have promised funding and support to reduce these rates, On the ABC's Q&A program, which aired last night, the leader of the opposition, Bill Shorten, was asked the following question from an audience member. Right now, there's a suicide emergency with Mm. Indigenous Australian youth. Both Labor and Liberal governments have promised to put money into suicide prevention. However, past records show that throwing money at something can be pointless. Tracy Westerman, the 2018 Western Australian of the Year, is a respected clinical psychologist and Niyama woman who believes that money is often used for, and I quote, crisis-driven, reactive and ill-informed responses. 
How will your government ensure that families like those in the Kimberley can keep their children safe from harm? Thanks, Francine. It's an epidemic. Again, not a topic which gets to the front of the newspapers, although to be fair, the media do have actually covered some of this epidemic better than perhaps previously. Issue of suicide is massive, but also the issue of our first Australians and the inequality of the lives that many of them live is massive. There's an intersection. On mental health and suicide, Labor's committed to doing a whole range of suicide prevention projects, and to be fair, so is the government. So we're trying to do not just more resource, but make sure it's effective. So there are a range of projects in the city and the bush on that. But I think the theme I would like to particularly address in your question is the issue of our unfair outcomes for Indigenous Australians. We don't have all night to go through everything that happens, but I tell you, I've got a unique idea to help make sure that Indigenous Australians get holistic solutions. I want to make Pat Dodson, who's from the Kimberleys, the father of reconciliation, I want him to make the first, I want him to be the first Indigenous Australian who's in charge of Indigenous matters in Australia. Can you start by, by claiming that this is a national emergency? Because no one has done that. No one has put this on that level and committed all government resources necessary to do something about it. Yeah, I think that's fair language. I think it's a national disaster, national emergency. I think, to be fair to a lot of people before me, people have tried to work at it, so I don't claim any special status in saying what I just said. But I do have a view about the nation. If any Australian's doing badly, that affects all of us. Sometimes in this country, we judge ourselves by how many billionaires we have on the Forbes, you know, rich list. I have a view that we should judge ourselves by if we have great disadvantage. Now, some of the conservatives say, oh, that's just all virtue signaling and they're, you know, cynical about it. We should be really proud of the fact that we share the continent with our first Australians who've got 60,000 years plus a continuous connection to country. I think we need to redefine our relationship with our first Australians, not from either indifference or paternalism, to partnership. Now, the way we do that, and I know you're talking about suicide, which is the cutting edge, and for some of you might say, well, just work out the suicide and worry about everything else later, but it's all connected. If you don't feel that you've got stable housing, if you don't feel you've got access to a job, if you're split up from your family, if you lose connection to country, it all works on each other. So, you know, we've got the suicide projects, but I'd also want to put to you that reconciliation in Australia and closing the gap is everything. It's putting our first Australians and recognising them in the nation's birth certificate, the Constitution. Uh, they had a, a whole lot of Aboriginal leaders attended a big meeting at Uluru. They came up with a declaration that they wanted to have a voice. They want to be consulted about laws made about them rather than just inflicted upon them. I think this is a reasonable idea. I don't think it means that we're creating a new House of Parliament just for Aboriginal Australians to be in charge of everything. So very briefly, how would it work? Um, would it have a constitutional basis? And yeah. would it give advice to government that government had to follow on Indigenous affairs? Well, Pat Dodson and Malandiri McCarthy, our Labor Senator from the Northern Territory, and Warren Snowden, who's a long-standing member for Lingiari, and, um, and plenty of other people, 
have been working on how do you actually turn the idea of properly consulting our first Australians into a reality. Pat Dodson, Shireen Morris, who's our Labor candidate and deacon, they've all worked on this. I think that we can uh, create regional assemblies. I think we can create a national body and I think we can put it into the constitution to consult. What it will not be is a third chamber of parliament. When you say you think you can, is this a commitment from oh, the yeah, Labor no, We've government? already made it's in our national, it's in our policy, yes. Right. It is our commitment. For some of you wondering why we talk about the constitution and properly consulting first Australians and a voice and a structure, some of you might say, oh, but that's not the practical stuff. Housing, school and jobs is what's practical. Well, that's true. Practical stuff matters. But if you want to have a relationship of equality, you've got to empower people to be part of the decision-making over their lives. You know, some people say that by giving Aboriginal Australians a voice, that they're getting a head start on everyone else. They get something special that no one else has. The reality is that our first Australians start behind everyone else. All we want them to do is have fair income, equal opportunity in this country. That was uh, the federal opposition leader there, Bill Shorten, speak, who was asked about uh, Indigenous suicide on the ABC's Q&A program last night. If you do require any support, you can contact Lifeline's uh, crisis hotline on 13 11 14. We're going to be hearing uh, soon from Adele Cox uh, on the topic of suicide and, and sort of progress made. Uh, but and we would, uh, following that, we will hear some of the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. But before all of that, we are going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hey, Mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention Evaluation Project, co-chaired by Professor Pat Dudgeon and former Social Justice Commissioner Tom Calmer, was delivered to the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull in October 2016. Evidence of the day confirmed the majority of existing programs were failing and the report recommended that all Indigenous suicide prevention programs be evaluated for effectiveness and that Aboriginal community-controlled health services be positioned as the primary providers of mental health care to Indigenous people using funding channeled through the mainstream primary health networks. Adele Cox, Project Director of the National Indigenous Critical Response Service, spoke with Paul Wiles shortly after the report was delivered. The issue of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander suicide and in particular youth suicide in uh, remote parts of Australia, Western Australia, the Northern Territory, far north Queensland, the very heart of it, what people living on the eastern seaboard and in the mainstream capitals don't understand is the devastating impact that this has on small communities. Absolutely, and I think we're very grateful that we had, uh, you know, two two families, and in particular two mothers who'd lost children to suicide, accompanied us to Canberra for the launch of the report. These are two families that people like Jerry Georgiatis and I have worked closely with over the years to try and assist and, and see how and what we could do to support families who are affected by uh, these tragedies. Hearing the voices of people with lived experience, uh, and particularly for us in Canberra, having that opportunity for the parliamentarians to uh, to meet the families and have a chat to them about, you know, what the issues are for them, I think was very significant. Um, and, you know, I certainly was very humbled by 
the whole experience myself. The main issues that came out of the report, obviously uh, having a good, accurate understanding of the extent of youth suicide within the Aboriginal and Islander community. The figures are very, very disturbing. And obviously, for those people working in the field, they're well aware. But uh, again, when we look at what has happened in four or five decades as compared to what was recorded back then, it's very, very disturbing. It is very disturbing. And, you know, I think sadly we've still got a a long way to go uh, before we actually get the the wider Australian population to um, our society as a whole to recognise that this issue of suicide and the high rates that we're seeing are, are very real. And until we change our approach, but also change our mindset about having some empathy and, and looking at ways to address and support causes and particular programs that are out on the ground, we're still going to have that uh, that as one of the battles that we have uh, ahead of us in terms of getting, I think, uh, the Australian population in general to uh, take this issue more seriously. We know how bureaucracies operate. Uh, all the boxes have to be ticked uh, before the bureaucrats put a process in place. It it doesn't really matter, to some extent, it doesn't matter what ministers think or what uh, prime ministers think. At the end of the day, the process of making something happen has to work its way through bureaucracies. And it is important that uh, accurate information is provided, uh, coronial decisions delivered in a timely manner. I mean, we know Mm -hmm. that for many people in remote communities, even talking about uh, the loss of one of their own family members, the the process is obviously very, very distressing and it does take time for that to occur. Yes, launching the report being the the culmination of two years of work for us is uh, just another step. We've still got a long way to go. I think the, the, the issue for us now is how do we keep on this government? How do we keep on the state and territory governments to also support and try and encourage them to look at the, the findings of the ATSI SPEP project and, and to take on board the recommendations and them themselves respond in a way to uh, you know some of the recommendations. There are many players in this area and all of us and, and all of them need to come together to, to look at how we can better address and, and respond to the needs of the community. One of the things that highlighted for me the importance of having multi-partisan support, so the fact that we had both this coalition government, we had, uh, you know, the opposition with, uh, you know, a, a good handful of Labour representatives who were there at the launch, uh, but we also had a, a showing and a support from the Greens. And I think that's certainly a step in the right direction. Uh, unfortunately, the Prime Minister couldn't attend the official launch, but we did have the privilege of uh, meeting with him in a closed meeting prior to the launch happening. Uh, so the families got to meet him and, and speak to him direct about, you know, the, the, the their grief their loss and the struggles that they have living in communities in terms of telling the real story of supports when they're supposed to be there uh, haven't necessarily been there. Adele, the uh, Australian Psychological Society recently apologised to Aboriginal people for failing them and uh, acknowledging that they'd done perhaps too much talking and not enough listening and uh, Mm -hmm. that they would now take a different uh, path in dealing as much as they can uh, in uh, helping Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have some input into these processes. Again, we know that uh, right across the board, allowing communities to help and be a part of solving the problem from within will deliver far better results. 
Yeah, and those are exactly things that are highlighted in the report and, and certainly in the recommendations that we know the things that work include when and where communities and local members of the community have been involved and engaged properly from the start in terms of identifying what the strategies and what the solutions are. Uh, and it certainly has to be from the ground up. And I think too long have we waited on services, too long have we been prescribed how and what needs to happen, uh, both from a funding resource point of view, but also I think from a, a program focus point of view. Part of the, the report and certainly part of, a big part of the work that we did was to highlight the fact that communities need to be front and centre in making any of those decisions about what what we do and how we respond to suicide. You yourself come from a community. You have a good understanding of what it is to be out on country. You, you now work in the big smoke. And again, the differences, what is available in a city as compared to what's available in a community, there's a massive gap. It's easy to talk about, but the reality when you're at that grassroots level is is more than obvious. And again, something that we have spoken about for such a long, long time is how do we get Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people part of these programs at that grassroots level, allowing them to have input, allowing them to use their knowledge, the knowledge that has served their people for thousands of years. How does that all fit into this? Yeah, look, I've had the the privilege, I guess, over the years of working in this space to see and to understand what the realities are in terms of services, programs, supports, etc. And whilst, yes, you know, there are certainly many gaps in terms of programs and and resources and support in in remote Australia. One of the things that, uh, you know, I have to inform your listeners of is the fact that living in the urban metro setting, whilst we talk about uh, isolation in terms of geography, there's a, a huge psychological isolation that happens in the cities where one assumes that in the city there are services that are available, you know, around the clock. Unfortunately, there are lots of Aboriginal people and the majority of our populations who live in the cities. There are still huge gaps in terms of access to those services for, for varying reasons. Uh, and so I think we need to look seriously at, at how we can address some of those gaps for Australia in general. One of the things that um, has come up from the uh, the government level in, into uh, studies that they've done and looking at the situation is duplication, replication of services and the fact that uh, there's a massive uh, response from whitefella organisations flying in to uh, try and help and assist where possible. But uh, this over-representation, I mean, from where I'm sitting, uh, what it does need is getting back to, again, what we were talking about, allowing local people in the community to have a paid job where they're acknowledged and recognised that this is part of their contribution to the community. Yep, yep. And look, I think, you know, I think part of the the fact that we we have had, uh, particularly with this project, you know, across portfolio support, uh, we know that uh, suicide prevention uh, is still the responsibility of health. Um, But, you know, we have people like Minister Scullion, uh, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, who uh, has supported this project uh, particularly uh, and some other areas of work. Um, and, you know, I think uh, we, we've seen some leeway, at least in the right direction, in terms of getting governments to understand the, uh, you know, the, the fact that uh, the issues uh, and then in turn the solutions are, are quite multifaceted. There's not just one issue that impacts and affects this area of work. And until we can get across government support, 
I'm usually a very optimistic person, but uh, often you you get quite cynical because you you think you know for years of advocating and working in this space, trying to get people to listen, both governments, NGOs, as well as our own communities. We're not going to see change until we have that multipartisan support and until we have whole of government support, so that you have you know education, justice, uh, along with health. Uh, indigenous affairs and and you know many of the other areas of government uh, actually taking you know taking some uh, note and responsibility for what needs to happen. And again, acknowledging that Aboriginal people living remotely, they're not going to leave their country and move to the city and and make it uh, presumably easier for the delivery of services. I mean, this is something. This issue is something that will be ongoing well into the future. We can't allow this situation to continue, governments of the day have to respond. Yep, absolutely. We've launched the report now uh, and, you know, part of me thinks, well, now the real work happens in terms of, uh, you know, making sure that this issue is kept on the agenda, that it is pushed as a priority for governments, for NGOs and, and for the Australian public, at, you know, at large. Our task now is to uh, await, I guess, the government's formal response to the report and its recommendations. And we then need to ourselves think about how we, uh, you know, what strategies we have in place to ensure that um, this issue isn't taken off the agenda. On that note, Adele Cox, many thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. That was Adele Cox there, director, project director of the uh, National Indigenous Critical Response Service speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We'll be heading to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country very shortly. But before then, here's a uh, quick track and then we'll be right back. That's right, you're tuning in to Calm Radio. You're here with me, Carl Dowling, for Strong Voices this Tuesday morning. And I'm very happy to say that I'm joined in the Karma studios by Karma's Paul Wiles for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Carl, and good morning, listeners. Well, Paul, uh, what, what do you have for us this morning? As, as we've been discussing, we've heard from a range of uh, a couple stories this morning in regards to Indigenous suicide. Obviously, uh, a very ongoing topic that yeah. has, you know... Look, um, I, I'm glad that it was raised uh, at Q&A because uh, obviously it has, uh, Q&A does have quite a significant national audience and uh, probably put an issue uh, out there that has been um, long running for uh, a decade or two decades or even three decades. But uh, addressing um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander suicide uh, should be an area of high priority. But more importantly, uh, as we heard in the story, it was 2016 that that uh, initial report was uh, presented to the then government or the then Prime Minister. The current government is still in office. Um, and as with many reports, as we've seen over the years, um, you know, people go to a lot of time and effort um, to compile these reports and put in recommendations from all levels of society, grassroots communities, uh, people working at a grassroots level, the ones who are actually facing that on a daily basis. And uh, the issue around uh, the funding of suicide, um, we have seen 
both the coalition government and, and Labor acknowledge uh, that um, suicide within the nation uh, is a big issue. Now, when we look at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander suicide and the rates of, it's a much bigger issue um, population-wise. So what we did here from Adele Cox was the delivery of funding to enable the right services to be treating people in community at a grassroot level is still a big, big issue. And it has been for quite some time. We've got a number of organisations and service providers talking about, you know, the support that's needed. Do do you think this is a space that isn't necessarily coming down to the, the amount of funding, but how that's allocated and the I guess, will behind that? Well, look, um, you know, not taking anything away from uh, government commitment over the years to address suicide on a national level, the flow down to communities going through mainstream services, and I won't name any, um, is uh, it's questionable whether or not they are able to deliver. Uh, Obviously, the issues around language, remoteness, all of these issues that community-controlled health services deliver day in, day out, um, working along with the community. And and these issues have to be resolved from within. Uh, It's like most health issues. Uh, People um, have um, need to have the capacity to take ownership, but while taking ownership, they also have to be able to have the the facility or the the workforce to be able to work within community at that level. So instead of flying people in and out and then trying to engage at a community level and then fly out and leave instructions, I would have thought the obvious solution is to be working with people who are there all the time. And we know over thousands of years, Nunkari have been dealing, you know, with all health issues Um what we do need to see, and we are seeing more of a turnaround where there's this acknowledgement and recognition that Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people need to be at the very core of delivering the services that government hopes will be delivered. Mm, definitely an ongoing thing. And, you know, it was at least good to have that recognition during Q&A, talking about it and, and actually being able to word it as, you know, a, a national crisis or national emergency. And let's hope as we move forward, we have seen commitments from both the government and, and opposition yep. promising in, in terms of addressing suicide and in particular Indigenous suicide as well. So definitely a space to continue to watch. Uh, just on another note, quickly, uh, we have seen Indigenous rights uh, the late Indigenous rights activist uh, Bill Ferguson immortalised in uh, bronze. So William Bill Ferguson was an Aboriginal rights activist who died uh, fighting for the rights of his people in 1950 at the age of 60 in his home of Dubbo. This is uh, a story from the ABC. Now, after a five-year campaign led by his descendants and supporters, a a life-size bronze statue of Mr Ferguson has been unveiled in the town's main street. Uh, Mr. Ferguson founded the Aboriginal Progressive Association to fight for Indigenous rights and led protests at the 1938 National Day of Mourning, declared on January 26. And Paul, you know, it's again just talking about, you know, we've had those conversations over a number of years in terms of the recognition of the mob and and Mm. having 
the different statues in terms of you know uh, some of the settlers and things like that have raised some controversy, but having more of that recognition in terms of the mob and, and their fight for the rights of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, I think is is a great thing. Oh, definitely, and I think uh, you know it, it's all about education, and what we've had is two hundred years of um, white fella education and uh, very limited black fella education. So what we are starting to see now uh, across the country is. Uh, uh, the story of uh, the First Nations peoples finally being told at, at, at um, you know levels that they should have been told and taught in schools. Um, things are changing slowly, but uh, it will take you know one two generations uh, before we hopefully start to see uh, some of the, that recognition um, across the board. And, and we know when when we travel interstate that uh, First Nations issues uh, aren't significant. Um, so it is an ongoing process, and that's what we do every day here at Karma is try and share those stories. Um, you know, obviously, uh, what we what we need is um, mainstream, and they have you know give credit um, where it's due. Uh, over the last decade, we've seen uh, um, apart from the negative stories, we have seen some uh, more positive stories about the First Nations peoples, um, but we need to see a lot more of it. Mm. Well, on that note, Paul, thank you so much for joining us for the news from around the country. Thanks, Carl. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio at KNFM. We're going to head into our final story now. The creators of a meditation app called Smiling Minds have collaborated with elders from the NPY Women's Council to create the first-of-its-kind culturally orientated meditation app with the aim of helping Aboriginal communities deal with mental health and trauma issues. The app has been translated into Creole, uh, Nanajara and Pitinjara, allowing people from the AP lands, APY lands, sorry, to meditate in their own language. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with Dr. Addy Watton, the CEO of the Smiling Minds app, about how the project came about. We've been working down here in Melbourne, actually, for about six years, uh, developing mindfulness content in English for through our app. Um, and probably about two years ago now, the, um, the women from the NTY Women's Council got in touch with us and asked us whether we'd be interested in working with them to develop some meditations in language. Um, and I jumped at the opportunity because um, it's, it's such an exciting place to be able to, um, I suppose, offer the, the um, benefits of mindfulness, um, but also exciting from our point of view to be able to explore whether we can introduce um, meditations in language to our listeners. Because um, we've got about 4 million people that use the Smiling Mind app and we thought it was a really great opportunity to share the um, Indigenous language and story um, with a wider audience. So, yeah, it was a very exciting opportunity for us. And, I mean, how important is that to, you know, um, bring uh, something like meditation um, to be able to bring it in language, like for, for those people in the APO Islands and, and other um, people that may speak Yankanjara or Pinjara. Yeah, uh, it's really it's really exciting. So I wondered whether the meditation and mindfulness would would translate across cultures, because you know we all have our different ways of looking after our own mind and our mental health. But the women that had been using um, the Smiling Mind app in workshops with the NPY Women's Council 
um, told me that they had really benefited from learning how to focus their attention on their body and slow down their thinking and clear their mind so they ha- had clear thinking. Um, so, But to be able to give that, uh, teach those skills in language is really, really important because um, learning how to meditate requires listening and understanding um, the language and trying not to think about what you're being told um, and I saw that really clearly um, when we travelled out to some schools on the APY lands um, to be able to play a guided meditation in the in language to a group of children who um, that was their first language and they could really listen without having to think about it or translate it in their mind was really powerful um, because it means that we can we can reach more people and help more people to learn about um, the benefits of mindfulness and meditation in a in an easier way. Yeah, you, you just sort of, um, like myself, you know, being uh, speaking my language first as well, Western Islander from Mount Hermansburg, I understand yeah. how, how difficult it can be to try and um, hear English and then translate it in your mind. And then that, you know, it sort of defeats the purpose when you're trying to meditate. Totally, exactly. You don't. The whole purpose of learning how to meditate is to learn how to focus your mind away from thinking. Um, so you're focusing on your body or your breath. So if you have to translate it in your mind, it just creates this extra effort for your mind, which is, yeah, you're right, it completely defeats the purpose. So to be able to uh, offer it in language is really, really powerful. And, and so for those people that may not know, what kind of uh, meditations does the app offer? Yeah, well, the Smiling Mind app has heaps of different meditations, but um, and we were founded um, really with a focus on kids and young people. So looking at how we can introduce mindfulness into schools so that everyone can learn from a young age. Uh, and the women we worked with at the AP, um, the MPY Women's Council um, decided that they wanted to develop meditations for adults and for kids. Uh, so. In the app, you can find um, a, two meditations that are written um, in each language for adults and one for children. Uh, and so the adult meditations, uh, one is a body scan, so it's a, a type of meditation that gets you to uh, focus on different parts of your body as a tool or an anchor to focus your mind, so you're learning how to use your body as, a, as an anchor. Uh, and the other one is a is actually a visualization meditation. So um, uh, the women picked some locations um, from from where they live, and they decided to write about those those locations. One's on a sand hill, um, and one's on a a, a, a hilltop. Um, and so it, the meditation guides you through sitting there and feeling calm and feeling safe and noticing the different sensations of the breeze and what you can hear um, as a tool to try and calm the mind. Um, and the, the kids' meditation is a shorter meditation and it's great, a beautiful meditation. It actually has a song at the end that the women recorded. So they're, yeah, quite different, each of them. And since the translations, um, what sort of uh, change or what kind of benefits have you seen, um, you know, speaking with the ladies from the APY lands? Yeah, the ladies talk about... Um, feeling calmer, I think, is the main thing that they notice right right from the start. So being able to calm their bodies down, feeling less stressed, um, and having clearer minds. So they talk talked a lot about you know, that idea of clear thinking rather than foggy thinking. Um, 
And I think we're hoping that we'll see the same feedback from the kids that are using the meditations in the schools out on the APY lands. Um, we've we've pilot tested uh, the meditations with them and we're waiting to hear back from the schools about how they've gone. Um, but it, it, it's definitely around feeling calmer, feeling less stressed, and then building well-being, so building positive feelings that come with practice. Cool. And just wondering as well, how did the um, how was all the translation and recording uh, the process, and, and how much um, you know how much time did the ladies spend down yeah. in Melbourne with you? Oh well, I, they actually didn't come down. I travelled up, um, and we ran some workshops together up in Alice Springs, um, and all the recordings were done up in Alice Springs. So it was really um, cool collaboration. They actually recorded them up there and then sent them down. Here and we um, edited them and popped them into our app. Um, but the translation was really interesting, uh, particularly from you know my point of view, not speaking the languages. Um, I learned a lot about how the differences between our languages, and particularly for the body scan, how many different words there are to describe different parts of the body. So we had to work pretty hard to make it simple and easy to understand and easy to translate. Um, so it wasn't just a simple translation from language, it was actually also looking at well, what are the, you know, the right ways of phrasing things from a cultural point of view that makes sense for the people that are going to be listening to it. So yeah, it was great. We had big workshops of um, yeah, fun, mostly. Lots of laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Addy, I just wanted to... Uh, I was just wondering as well, um, is, there, is there a chance uh, to to be able to uh, record some of this in other languages as well? Yeah, definitely. We're really open to working with other communities if they, they are interested. Um, I think it worked really well because with these two languages because the women that were driving it um, are Nankari and respected in their community and so they really took it on to champion the project. Um, so if there are other communities that have, a, you know, a group of people that are really passionate about it, we would love to work together with, with whoever is interested um, to record some meditations in other languages. And, Addy, I was just talking to... Um Amy Tribe from the NIB Foundation who helped, uh, you know, get some funding together to, to be able to produce it. How important is, uh, you know, getting that sort of help as well for, for the ladies to be able to um, produce this kind of stuff with your help? Uh, yes, it's so important. We couldn't have done it without the funding from the NIB Foundation. So their funding allowed us to bring the women together in Alice Springs and run the workshops. Um, and it also allowed me to travel up to Alice Springs because we're a not-for-profit as well and with limited resources, it's really hard to get things done. So, um, yeah, without their funding, we wouldn't have been able to do it. And, it's, yeah, it, they've basically enabled a, a really exciting project that we think, you know, one of the first of its kind to bring meditation and mindfulness um, in, into the world in these two amazing languages. Addy, I was just wondering as well if people wanted to, uh, you know, get the app. How, how, what's the process in uh, trying to get the app? Well, the app's freely accessible, so it's free. You don't have to pay for it. And you can access it either um, through the um, I, so iTunes, um, through the iTunes store, or through Google Play on, if you have an Android phone. So um, it's called Smiling Mind. 
Uh, and if you type that into the, the search, you'll find the app. When you download the app, um, you need to go into a section called Other Languages and you'll find that they're the programs in that section. So um, altogether, there are um, three meditations for each of the two languages and two are for adults and two are for kids. On that note, uh, Dr. Addie Wooden, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yes, that was Dr. Addy Wooten there, the CEO of the Smiling Minds app, speaking with Karma's Damien Williams. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this morning. Thank you for tuning in. If you uh, wanted to listen back to any of the stories or may have missed any of them, you can head to the Karma SoundCloud where I'll be posting up a podcast of today's Strong Voices. So just head into Google, type in uh, Karma SoundCloud, and we'll be posting up the uh, podcast of that episode later this afternoon. Stay safe, enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll be back the same time tomorrow. Strong voices.